You've tuned in to the Round Table Podcast, episode 68. Greetings, literary alchemists. I'm Doc Coleman. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we open it up, pull out its internal organs, swap them around in different configurations, <laughs> add a few things we've got lying around the lab, put it all back in, sew it up, slap on some electrodes, and shock it with electricity, transforming it from raw, lifeless matter into... Literary gold. <laughs> we are the Dr. Frankensteins of the potosphere, are we not? Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Doc, I am so delighted to have you as my wingman once again on the roundtable. Thank you for joining me, bud. I'm very glad to be back. Hey, and before we dive into this, uh, uh, you, you've got stuff going on out in the world. Can you can you share with our listeners real quick what's going on in the world of, of Doc Coleman? Um, well, it, it hasn't been as fast-paced as I'd like it to be, but um, uh, an anthology that I was a part of got published um, uh, this past year, and that's uh, The Way of the Gun, yes. the Bushido Western Anthology. <laughs> uh, that's that six delightful stories set in a world where the code of Bushido came to the West and was was a pivotal part of how the, the, the West was shaped. And uh, that was uh, created by Scott Roche, mm-hmm. and, and it features uh, Scott and other great names like Justin McCumber, Jared Axelrod. Yeah. I had the pleasure of narrating Justin's story for audio, and it was yeah. awesome. So, very cool. So, so that's out. Uh, unfortunately, I'm still working on publishing uh, or I'm getting my novel uh, The Perils of Prague ready for publishing uh, because I've had a number of personal uh, setbacks, uh, some some tragedy in, in my family and mm-hmm. uh, just some, some issues around the, some, some domestic disasters around the house that uh, have taken a lot of time to deal with repairs. Life just but, keeps uh, lifing. But uh, I've also uh, done some voice work for uh, PC Herring for his upcoming uh, uh, sci-fi story. And uh, that's all finished and it's in production now. I'm not sure when PC is planning on releasing that. But that's for a, a new sci-fi trilogy called uh, Slip Space. Ooh, intriguing. Awesome. Well, PC couldn't have done better than to pull from, uh, pull from the vocal gold that is Doc Coleman. That's awesome. Thank you. Very cool. And, and and speaking of gold, let's bring back our, our guest host to the podcast so we can move this bad boy forward because I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. Yes, uh, let's. Dear friends, coming from her marvelous 20 minutes with of just seven days ago, uh, please welcome back to the big chair here at the roundtable, Jean Cavellos. Jean, thank you so much for coming back and, and, and agreeing to workshop a story with us. This is going to be fabulous, ma'am. Very excited to bring this primordial slime to life. <laughs> I can, it, we, we are we're like the creators of 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 magnificence i'm loving it i'm loving it gene now th- there's there's so much going on not the least of which is is the uh the the, the debut the the launching of of the winter session of the odyssey writers workshop so i i would love if you would just take a few minutes and and regale our listeners in in what's coming up not just for that but also if there's anything coming up for you just give us give us the the wonderful buff 
two-faced smorgasbord that is Gene Cavellos. Okay. Ah, I'm a smorgasbord. You are a smorgasbord, absolutely. So we have um, three online classes coming up. I'm afraid the deadline for the first one has passed already, uh, if you're listening to this. But we have two other great classes. Uh, one is on scene structure, and one is on endings. Both of those are critical things that writers struggle with. Uh, the deadline for the scene structure class is December 9th which is, I think, the day this podcast is airing. So if you're interested, jump on over to the Odyssey site and fill out an application, and we'll try to fit you in. Uh, the endings course, the deadline is the 26th, so you have a little bit more time. Um, these are classes that we put a lot of time and attention into. We only do three a year because we want them to be great. We want them to be really helpful to writers. We only let in 14 people per course. So... Um, the people who get in get a lot out of it. So I hope you will check those out. We hold them live online through GoToMeetings so that you can interact with the instructor and with your classmates. We have great discussions, great question and answer going on in the courses. So it's really interactive. And then you do lots of homework. You got to be ready to work. <laughs> and then we give you lots of feedback on it. See, so, and that's awesome. So there's no traveling, there's no accommodations, there's no food expenses. It's it's just you and your computer and, and a dozen other brilliant, wonderful, creative writers and, and the instructor, right? Yeah. And the occasional cat may come <laughs> to the view. And uh, iguana, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, once in a while. Just <laughs> making uh, yes. it your comfiest hotel experience ever. Absolutely. Uh, some people do it in their PJs. It's all good. That's right. Pants optional. <laughs> oh, my. Don't stand up in front of the camera. <laughs> That's right. Um, we also have the Summer Odyssey Writing Workshop coming up, our six-week program uh, that is held in June and July in Manchester, New Hampshire, every summer. And all the information's up on our site. You can check out uh, our guests, the the costs, the fill out the application. The early deadline application date is January 31st. So if you apply by that date, you get to find out sooner whether you're, you get in or not. And so then you can plan. If you have like a complicated life and need to you know, do something <laughs> to your boss to get the time off, now this will give you a few months to plan. Uh, otherwise, the regular application date is April 8th. So then whatever you need, uh, arrangements you need to make with the boss, they need to be done quickly <laughs> to get him out of the way. See, now I would be curious to know if, if all of the outliners sign up in January and all the pantsers and discovery writers <laughs> sign up in April. We need to do some demographic research on that. Ah, that is a very interesting idea. Yes, I'd like <laughs> to know that. Um, I do find, actually, I think more guys apply for the early deadline and more... Women apply for the later deadline. Interesting. But I will have to study that further as well. I was going to say, we don't want to throw out any statistical uh, uh, anomalies at this point. I, I, yes, I, I'm not committing to anything. <laughs> um, anyway, the six-week workshop, if you are able to get the time away from home, is really one of the best things you can do for your writing. You think about writing, talk about writing, write, and get feedback on your writing all day long, every day for six weeks. It's very intensive. Um, the students who come make some great, exciting progress. Um, you will have your head stuffed full of knowledge from me and from our wonderful guests. Uh, you will get so much feedback and you'll have so much a better idea 
of your strengths and weaknesses as a writer and how to attack your weaknesses and you will be able to make improvements and cut cross some of those weaknesses off of your list and then we'll give you new ones that are more advanced to worry about <laughs> <laughs> like hey do you have any symbolism in your story oh damn <laughs> <laughs> um, but really uh, it's um i mean it's something that i wanted to do 20 years ago when i started it to to help writers have a better experience um, in writing genre fiction that it's hard to find at a you know at an mfa college program because most of the time the instructors there don't know a lot about genre fiction or may not even want you to turn in a story like that at their school. Um, but working with other writers who believe in that art form and believe in the value of fantastic fiction uh, really um, can help you to, to make a huge improvement and to, to be welcomed into a community. We have just an awesome community of graduates who support each other uh, over the years and, and have achieved great success. So that's really exciting to see. And really fostering a community of, of your peers uh, is, is an invaluable tool, not just in terms of your craft, but also, you know, quite honestly, in, in your career as far as moving forward that way. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Because some of these graduates, they become literary agents, they become editors, or they become best-selling authors who can then write a blurb for the cover of your book, mm -hmm. or they can just share information with you about, hey, here's a new market that might like your story. Or really the most important thing is just having other people who care whether you write today. Yeah. And that's what one of the most valuable things I think that, that people get out of it is that they make friendships for life and then they have, they can have these writing partners where, you know, you can check in with each other a lot of the classes, they have their own discussion groups that we set up where they each week talk about what they've done. They exchange stories with each other. Um, some of them exchange information every day. You know, I wrote a thousand words today or I wrote 10 words today or, or I deleted 50 words. Today. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, to have somebody who cares and to have some method of getting encouragement I think is really important because writing is such a solitary business. Right. Just to know that there are other people out there who are in it with you, who sure. are struggling in the trenches right alongside can, can make a big difference. In the age of, of social media with Google Hangouts and Skype and, and go to meeting, the, the solitary writer uh, is really kind of falling to the wayside. Now, Gene, do you have uh, anything coming along personally? Are you are you making any convention appearances, or are there any literary works that are that are looming on the horizon for you? Uh, I will be at uh, Aresia and Boscone, which are in the Boston area. Uh, that's in January and February. Excellent. And, and I'll be at ReaderCon in July, which is also in the Boston area. I I don't have plans to go farther than that right now, but the that may happen. Okay. Um, Writing-wise, I'm continuing my epic march through my novel, <laughs> Fatal Spiral, which you may have heard about in the last episode. <laughs> um, but the other thing I would say is I just would like to invite everybody, if you want to come over to the Odyssey site and check out our salon, we have a weekly discussion salon, which is live online, where you just join. It's through GoToMeeting. It's really easy. And you just can talk about your writing problems, your goals, your insights, uh, ask a question to the group. Uh, and we have a, a weekly topic that we talk about that you can participate in. 
It's just for an hour on Wednesday night, so if you're interested, come on over and you can meet some great other writers if you're looking for a little community. What time does that happen on Wednesday night? Is there is there a specific time each week? Yeah, it's 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay, awesome. Very That's cool. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, I, I know with the... Uh, I, I founded a, a writer's group this year, and... Um, we, we have a monthly uh, writer support meeting that sounds very similar to your salon. Just give you know people of whatever skill level a chance to talk about what they're tripping on and get advice from everybody else. Outstanding. Very cool. Well, Gene, Doc, I will make sure that all of that awesomeness gets into the liner notes. And dear listeners, if you're listening, uh, make sure if you, if you want to find links to all of that coolness, go to www.roundtablepodcast.com. Uh, this particular episode and all of the links to all of that coolness will be there. But for right now, dear friends, I would like to take a brief pause uh, uh, and promote uh, another worthy podcast or, or ebook or, or I don't know, perhaps a, a writing program. I don't know. Uh, uh, but let's, let's uh, take a pause for a promotional break. And when we come back, I would love to workshop a story with you. What do you say? I say, let's do it. <laughs> I like your attitude, Coleman. Yes, let's definitely do it. Friends, we'll be right back. Don't you go anywhere. The Odyssey Writing Workshop's Charitable Trust is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to helping you, writers of fantasy, science fiction, and horror, improve your work. Each winter, Odyssey holds three intensive online writing classes. Class meetings are held live, so your learning process is active and effective. This year's classes are Showing versus Telling in Fantastic Fiction, taught by Odyssey director Gene Cavellos. One Brick at a Time, Crafting Compelling Scenes, taught by award-winning novelist Barbara Ashford, and Effective Endings in Speculative Fiction, taught by editor and writer C.C. Finley. Application deadlines are early December, so check these out now. Each summer in New Hampshire, Odyssey holds its acclaimed six-week workshop, widely considered one of the best programs in the world for writers of the fantastic. Students regularly call it inspiring, and transformative. They make great improvements in their work, and 59% of graduates go on to professional publication. The application deadline is April 8th. Odyssey also offers many resources, including a critique service, monthly podcasts, a blog, and a weekly online discussion salon where you can share your writing struggles and insights. Don't let more time pass without making a major improvement in your writing. Visit Odyssey at www.odysseyworkshop.org. Welcome back, Literary Alchemists. And now that we've had heard from, from that delightful advertiser, uh, Dave, Dave, I think we're missing something here. <laughs> we've, got, we've got you and we've got me and the nice cushy host chairs. We've got our... our a uh, uh, guest host, but we've got an empty chair here. We need someone to fill that chair. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more because without that chair being filled, the round table doesn't happen. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, dear friends, let me introduce you to our guest writer for this episode. Uh, uh, he, he's wanted to be a writer since the age of six. Uh, in his early career, he regaled his fellow first graders with transcribed narratives of his dreams. Now, now, while these stories may have lacked depth, 
character arc and anything resembling a cohesive plot, they did serve the purpose of purging his system of the and then I woke up ending, which I think is a wonderful thing that everyone should should just get out of their system early in their writing career. Uh, in more recent years, he's begun to actualize his long-held ambition, uh, seeing his short fiction published in podcasts, fiction blogs, and anthologies. Uh, he doesn't blog and tweets only sporadically, so if folks want to check out his work or drop him a line, he can most easily be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash agmalone79. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the roundtable, Austin Malone. Austin, it's never easy to put your baby up for scrutiny, especially after Doc's introduction, knowing we're going to slice it open and, and rearrange its <laughs> internal organs. Uh, so so kudos and much gratitude for your courageousness in stepping up, man. We appreciate it. Not at all. I'm looking forward to the pain. <laughs> the pain. No, no pain here. It's all good. It's all good. I'm just curious, uh, any of those uh, uh, dream narratives ever actually make it to text, bud? <laughs> not anything that anyone will ever see. I'm sure there's a, note, I'm sure there's a notebook somewhere, a tattered spiral notebook in a box in my parents' house somewhere, but no, never. Okay. Right. Fair <laughs> as enough. long as it's not in your psychologist's files. So. Uh, <laughs> your psych file, hey. yeah, really. Interesting. Tell me about your mother. No, no, let's not go there. Uh, uh, so, so Austin, let, let's let's dive into this bad boy. You've brought a story to workshop, and we're keen to workshop it. So, so we're, here's the deal. We're going to give you five to eight minutes. Uh, give us the title, the genre, the format. Give us the the themes. Ex- introduce us to the world, the characters. Give us some tent poles of story arc. Uh, give us give us a, a framework that we can dive into uh, for some frothing workshopping brainstorming goodness i'm going to get out of the way sir the mic is all yours all right the title of this novel is rune song it's a ya secondary world sword and sorcery uh the plot a self-centered unambitious rune caster must look beyond himself and act to save his world and the people he loves from destruction by a hostile invasion the theme uh we're going to go with finding the courage to defy the status quo and take a stand against tyranny in order to protect the people you love The world. Long ago, a triumvirate pantheon of three sisters came to a world of turmoil and war. They staked out a remote island as their home. After erecting a fence around the island, a volcanic mountain range called the Teeth of the World, they dispersed their essence among 24 of their followers and receded into the magical world tree. Now, a few thousand years later, the denizens of Drossel live in an isolated utopia. They have a tentative truce with the indigenous people of the island, the Dinopodai, who reside in their own section of the island and have a communal bond with the giant spiders that share that area with them. A brief note on the magic system. The Bitkar gather twice a year to collect the supplies for their runes. To invoke a rune's magic, the runestone is snapped and cannot be used again. Each Bitkar personifies one rune's specialized power. Uh, Moving on to our characters, I'm going to have a bunch of characters, but we're going to focus on the two main ones and the villain here. So our main character is Peth. He is 19. Unambitious and self-centered, he nonetheless seeks to prove himself to his mentor and the other Vidkar. Every action he takes is informed by this desire. Chase, the same age as Peth, Chase feels an unshakable connection to Peth. Historically, in their previous incarnations, Chase and Peth are an inseparable team. 
In their current incarnation, however, this isn't the case. Chase longs to establish a bond with Pep, and every action he takes seeks to further this end. Moving on to our villain. Our villain Lydia is Peth's mother. After her husband is murdered by the Vidkar and her son stolen from her by the same, she becomes the first person ever to leave the land of Drassel. Now she is returned, and with her entourage of shadow warriors, she ruthlessly proceeds with her plan to eradicate the Vidkar and burn the world tree down. Moving on to plot, um, I should note that I separated this into four acts. So in Act 1, Peth sees an airship heading for the Dinobodai Basin from the other side of the teeth of the world. He reports to his mentor and is told to stay put. Instead, he follows her to the council meeting. The council sends a retrieval party into the Dinobodai Basin, which are promptly captured by the Dinobodai people. Peth frees them. A fight ensues. Cooler heads prevail. The Vidkar are told to set up camp on the spot while the Dinobodai scouts retrieve the invader. Uh, once that happens, on the way back to the World Tree Grove, they experience the stabbing pain of a Vidkar being killed. The prisoner reveals that the invasion is already well underway and the Vidkar are the target. Act 2, Peth turns in the prisoner to the council, uh, gets sent home. Chase arrives at Pet's home to beg his help because his mentor is missing. They go to the record keeper's office in the capital and find her dead. They have only a moment to observe clues before a member of the Vidkar Council arrives to investigate. Um, it's a 10-year-old girl named Susie, and they're forced to watch her grieve from their hiding place without being able to, to help or reveal that they're there. Act 3. Peth and Chase decide to take action, and they figure that the governor is the next target. They arrive to find the assassin climbing the governor's tower. In his attempt to stop the bad guy, Peth accidentally kills him, which pisses the governor off because he'd laid a trap to take the bad guy alive and interrogate him. Peth is sent home, again. Along the way, he comes across fishermen riding full tilt to the capital from his village, They've seen a fire on the shore of the Dinobodai Basin and a fleet of ships invading from the other side of the teeth. Act 4. Peth enlists the aid of the mysterious Vidkar the Hermit. Together they douse the fire in the Dinobodai Basin and destroy the invading fleet. Then they go to the World Tree Grove to find it under attack by the Shadow Warriors. The villain is revealed, and as the body count rises, Peth makes a decision to offer a compromise to Lydia. Let the Vidkar escape and leave this plane of existence, and he will stay with her to rule the land by her side. And that's the end. Boom. Awesome. Great pitch, dude. Well done. All right. Now, before we dive forward, uh, uh, Austin, what are you hoping to get out of this ensuing froth of brainstorming goodness? Well, I realize that the uh, the pitch was very, very condensed, so questions, you've got them. I want to hear them, give you questions, <laughs> lots and lots of questions. Questions are good. Okay. Uh, what about in terms of what you're hoping to get for your story? Wh wh where do you feel the weaknesses are? Where would you like us to focus our attention? Um, I, nothing's really set in stone. I mean, I, I've got the story plotted out, but I've got several different ideas of, of where it could go. So again, just... Question me, try to poke holes in it. I, I want to want to see how it holds up, and I might offer up some of the alternative endings and plot lines that I had thought of for 
Very good. Awesome. We can work with that. But before we do, we really need to give you our patented Roundtable Podcast disclaimer just to make sure all of our asses are covered. Uh, So, Doc, would you be so kind? Certainly. All right, Austin, you're about to hear a veritable flood of ideas and inspirations. And it's important that you understand that everything said from this point forward by me, Dave, or Gene might turn out to be complete and total bullshit. We will come forth with some brilliant ideas, but not all of them will be for your story. Ultimately, this is your story, and only you can decide what to keep and what to toss up. All right. I am wearing my hip boots. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's and, and the right attitude. That's exactly <laughs> the right attitude. Awesome. Very cool. Well, then let's roll into this. It is customary that we take a, a quick once around the table to uh, uh, give each of us an opportunity to ask some of those questions of clarification and also uh, highlight some of the, the key areas and first impressions of the story idea. Uh, and habitually, we start with our guest host. So, Gene, uh, uh, if you would be so kind, what, what are your first impressions? impressions of Austin's story uh, and any questions you might have for clarification. Okay. Well, first of all, it sounds very exciting. I see a lot of action going on and the stakes seem high, so that's really good. Um, I am a little confused, so I'd love to have some answers to some questions. I thought from the pitch that these three evil sisters created the Vitgar, but then the Vitgar seem to be good and our hero seems to be trying to protect them. So I'm unclear on that. Um, I'm troubled about Prath, who is described as unambitious, but then he's self-centered and wants to prove himself. And he seems to be going around doing a lot of stuff for somebody who's unambitious. Uh, I would be happy if he's not unambitious because unambitious characters are hard to get off the couch and into action and we want them in action. Um, Another thing that I had a question about was his relationship with his mother. I don't know if he knows she's evil all along. It seems like maybe he realizes she's evil in act four and if that's the case, if it's a revelation late in the story, then I think we need a lot of interaction between them earlier in the story where we see how much the mother means to him or what the mother means to him so that It'll have emotional impact when we find out he's she's the bad guy or if he already knows how does he cope with that in his life. Um, the other thing I had questions about is the causal chain. Um, I know you had to describe it really fast, so you left a lot out, but it kind of felt from what you said like a lot of the events just like he happens to see this or he happens to come upon people who tell him that or I, I'm not seeing one thing leading to another in a strong way so that the action is building rather than it being more episodic and like, well, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. So if you could clarify some of those causal connections, that would help me. Okay. All right. Uh, so, so first and foremost, uh, uh, Austin, uh, ex- explain briefly uh, uh, the nature of the three goddesses uh, that, that created Drossel. The, the nature of the sisters is that they're actually, um, pretty pacifistic. They're not interested in uh, war or bloodshed or all of the savagery that's going on in this early version of the world when they first arrive. So they, they pretty much set up a little island all to themselves, isolated from the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, the Vidkar are kind of like the, the benevolent rulers of this land. Okay. And uh, uh, about Peth's lack of ambition? Yeah, I mean, he's 
he's pretty unambitious. He's a 19 year old. He's got a pretty comfortable life. He lives in this, this fishing village. Um, the thing I, I neglected to mention is that the Vidkar reincarnate, that the essence of the rune that they embody travels from one to the other after, after death. So the previous paths have all been kind of shady characters. So he's got that stigma associated with them from the other Vidkar. And, and which rune to does he embody? He embodies the, he embodies the rune of Perthro, uh, which grants... The rune is called Perthro, okay. and the, uh, the magical ability there is invisibility. Okay. So when teamed up with Chase, whose ability is shape-shifting, the two of them have been a, a solid team for horrific acts throughout years before. But again, they have, they have no memory of this life together. They only have the history of the Vidkar to look upon. And yeah, Peth, Peth sees that and wants to be better than that. But again, he's in a very comfortable position. He doesn't really have many opportunities to, to shine or to, you know, to prove himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I gotta say, I'm, I'm kind of with Gene on this. The, the unambitious protagonist is, is a challenge. We, and we can work on that. We can discuss mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. What about uh, uh, his relationship with his mother? He has none. Uh, the way this works is when a child is born who is uh, destined to be a Vidkar, they have a birthmark in the back of their neck in the shape of the rune that they personify. So when Peth is born, the uh, the Vidkar who is to mentor him appears and informs the mother that she's got you know five years to potty train him and teach him to eat food and to speak, and then they'll be taking him away from her, never to be seen again. So that's that's the the dark side of the Vidkar is that in order to perpetuate their own existence, they take children away from their families. Okay. So Peth's mother, as as I said, she leaves the island of Drossel. Her husband was murdered by the Vidkar. Her son turns out to be a Vidkar and is stolen from her. So she leaves with the intent of raising an army and returning to wipe them from the face of the earth. Okay. Gene, does that help answer those three questions? Yes. Uh, I guess I'm, I now have a new question, which is <laughs> uh, if he has essentially no relationship with his mother, mm-hmm. what difference does it make that the villain is his mother? It doesn't make a difference to him necessarily. It makes all the difference to her. So when she meets it, when they meet at the end in the fourth act, his main priority is trying to keep the other Vidkar safe. You know, so he then wants there's... to. There's like no emotional component in, oh my God, the bad guy is my mother. As as it stands right now, no. But now that you say it like that, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that that has to that has to enter into it somehow. Let's definitely but, let's put a pin in that and and discuss that as we as we start diving deeper. Um, I, I just have to do this once and get it out of the way. Peth, I am your mother oh yeah sorry about this there you go I told dave yesterday this is going to be the alternate ending to the empire strikes back but that's yes, right yes i will join you and, <laughs> and we will we will empire. we will rule the empire together uh and and the question about the causal relationships gene could you rephrase that and and uh, give 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 austin a chance to uh, uh speak to that sure um you know i may just not have heard some stuff i'll just read some things from my notes um so if he's an unambitious guy, he sees this airship, he goes to the council meeting. Why does he go to the council meeting if he's unambitious? Then he, he frees somebody. I'm not sure why he's doing that. 
So that's the whys that I'm concerned and the connections of how one thing leads to the next. Um, he turns in a prisoner to the council um, and they find the record keeper dead. I'm not, I'm not sure what his goal is. I, I guess maybe that's part of the causal chain is what is his goal? Why is he doing these things that he's doing? Uh, and then how does one thing lead to the next? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, this is something that I had to cut from the initial pitch. His mentor, Cassandra, he has got a huge puppy love crush on her. Um, she recognizes this and does absolutely nothing to further it. She wants nothing to do with that kind of uh, emotional entanglement with him. Um, so, yeah, a lot of what he does, he's trying to trying to show himself as more than just her, uh, her student and wants to be one of her peers and to, to make her fall in love with him. So um, he's unambitious mainly due to his circumstances. He's got a comfortable life. He does the same thing every day. You know, there's, there's no conflict in his world. This is, this is for all intents and purposes, a utopia until he sees. Or is it dun, dun, dun. (laughs) We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that as we dive forward. We'll come back to that. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, uh, Gene, any anything else for this just this first round of discussion, or are you do you have some good seeds to chew on? Uh, okay, well, just to be a troublemaker, absolutely. I don't see him being unambitious if he has found the love of his life and she doesn't love him. Then he has a huge ambition, which is to make her love him. Absolutely, I, I think it has nothing to do with how comfortable his life is. I think if he truly loves her and she's not showing any interest, he's got to win her over. He, that's his goal, or at least huge. one of his. Goals. Huge goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Doc, what about you? First impressions and questions of clarification. So Chase is basically his motivation in this is that he feels this past life connection with Peth, and he's trying to foster this. That's right. Uh, Additionally, Chase has had the opportunity to learn about Peth's past from his own mentor and his own interactions as a shapeshifter among places and people he maybe shouldn't be spying on. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, Chase is in love with Peth. So we've got the unrequited love of Peth to Cassandra, and we also have the unrequited love of Chase to Peth. So a lot of Chase's motivations are going to be to prove to Peth that he's not a bad guy and, you know, they mm-hmm. really do belong together. I love that. I think that's okay. awesome. And it's like, it's, it's pointless to ask if Chase is... Male or female, because being a shapeshifter can be whatever it needs to be. Okay. Exactly, which um, I think is awesome, and and, and can be a source for some incredible uh, exploration of, of gender roles. Definitely, okay. I mean, he, he identifies as male, but again, he can he can shapeshift and take on the full physical form of either sex. So, so just to underscore, uh, uh, Lydia's motivation is that her husband was killed by one of the Vict- Vicar. Mm-hmm. Whatever the whatever the actual case is, she believes it was murder, and then mm. her her son turns out to be one of them and was taken away from her. So she's basically a normal person who feels powerless, and so she left the island searching for power, and now she's found it and she's coming back to wreak vengeance. You got it. Oh, dude, and and if the father was also a vidcar of the same rune that Peth has has manifested into. That would just be badass. That would be a, an incredible conflict. And, and what a conflict for Peth to know he's embodying or to, to discover he's embodying the same rune force that killed his father. I 
had a thought on that, and it's that the uh, the father is actually from the outside world and was found, basically shipwrecked on the other side of the teeth. Ooh, very cool. The, the Peth prior to our main character was one of the assassins sent to kill. Better, better. <laughs> yeah, like it, like it a lot. Awesome. Very no, cool. actually, I like that because that means that that gives her connection to the outside world and the fact that she knows because her husband was able to take down at least one of the Vitkar uh, uh, when they came after him. She knows that there's power in the outside world that, that she can use for her vengeance. I like that. That's awesome. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the Vitkar are not, not so much benevolent rulers as they're a bunch of uh, basically indifferent demigods that they've made society as a whole nice on the island. Uh, people know their places. It's relatively comfortable, but they're not necessarily good people. And and they keep translating from body to body. Um, uh, it seems like there's 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 a whole uh, 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 character arc, uh, a multiple life character arc with the Vicar. Oh, you yeah. know, do they learn from their past lives because they forget them or do they make the same mistakes over and over? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Fun stuff yeah. to play with there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anything else, Doc? Uh, I think that's it for my questions. I do have comments for later. Okay. So. Awesome. So what have you got, Dave? Um, well, first of all, Austin, I love this world. I, I love the idea of, of an isolated uh, uh, region that is shut off from the rest of the world uh, with, with, with awesome power. Uh, I, I love the idea of the reincarnating powers themselves. Uh, uh, and and I, as you observe, Doc, I, I love the idea of the legacy of that history of each rune. And I'd love to see us explore a little more of, of what that means. Um, my, my, I have a couple questions, uh, and I'm, I'm a world builder by, by trade. Uh, so I, my question is, Austin, why did the three goddesses create this place in the first place? What was their intent? What was their desire? Well, as, as we'll find out in the, the final scene, the intrusion of this invading force that is intent on destroying them is going to cause them to leave the world through the, uh, the roots of the world tree and enter another one. It's presumed, at least I, I think this is how it happened before, that in essence, the weird sisters were chased off from a, a previous world and entered this one. So this is just what they do. They, 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 they seed a world uh, until the world doesn't want them anymore and then kicks them out. That's that's the way it seems at the moment. Yeah. So they're 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 godlike parasites, basically. Well, th this world is a step on their eternal journey. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If we take Doc's uh, Doc's stance of this uh, large arc, then yeah, this would be one more chapter in their their story. Okay. So so either they're they're godlike parasites, or they're on a path of ascension, and this is a stage in that path. Mm -hmm. A little of both. Okay. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> the, the other question is uh, a question about Lydia's motivations. Why does she want to come back and burn the tree and destroy Drasil? I mean, couldn't she just come back, get her son, and take him out to the outside world, which is awesome and fabulous? Or just live a nice life in the outside world. Yeah. Well, I mean, she attempted the first bit. When? The, uh, before they came to take him away, they come for the children at age five. Okay. So I mean, they're, when they when Cassandra and 
the other Vidkar came to steal her son, she was on a ship, you know, heading for the teeth of the world, seeking an exit with her son. So she's made that attempt before, and, you know, they they caught her and expelled her and took her son. Okay, so she tried to buck the system. Right. Okay, all right. And she's already failed at that. Now, wait, Cassandra was there? Mm-hmm. So Cassandra's like 40 years old? Oh, Cassandra's in her 70s. There's a The other thing about the Vidkar is they have this... Uh, okay, whoa, whoa, back up. <laughs> Pet's love of his life is a 70-year-old woman. See, we're not going to back up. We're going to continue. Demigods, your rules do not saying. apply. Yes, they, uh, they have a, a crazy longevity. I mean, nobody has really plotted the lifespan of a Vidkar from natural birth to natural death. Oh my God, so they all die horrible deaths or disease or are murdered? Essentially, yeah. I mean, we've uh, I've got two Vidkar in the story who are ancients, who have been around practically since the very first iteration. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they, they maintain their youth for a very long time. Think, uh, think like elves in Tolkien's world or wizards and Jim Butchers, Dresden Files. Interesting. You know, Interesting. They'll live, they'll live for hundreds of years and just okay. rat- Okay, so so everybody who's tapped as a Vidkar is looking at basically immortality if they can right. just stop from getting shot, killed, decapitated, <laughs> murdered, maimed, or plague-ridden. Got it. Okay, that's kind of cool. All right, so uh, uh, that's it for me for my initial observations and questions. Uh, let, let's dive into this. Gene, where do you want... Uh, I know where you want to start. Go ahead and, and start... You, you want to dig into Peth. You want to you make him uh, 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 not unambitious, right? That's part of it. All right, lead uh, us off. Uh, okay, so this story is sounding a lot to me like a, a Fahrenheit 451 kind of story. Ooh, nice. Where he's indoctrinated into an evil society. He thinks it's good, but he gradually realizes that it's not. I mean, I don't understand how the Vitgar are benevolent, nice people when they're kidnapping children at age five and doing these other things that don't seem very nice. Right on. Uh, and holding power over the regular people, which I think there's a significant number of. Uh, so it seems to me like Peth needs to wake up at some point in this story that this is about him realizing that Cassandra is no good. She's like Axis Sally. And this, this whole place is rotten. And that his mother, who he has disavowed and thinks horrible things of, is actually a good person and that he should help her. I mean, why is that not what the story is? I think that's awesome. It it is. I mean, ultimately, at the end, he is going to concede that, you know, his mother might be right. And why wait to the end? Well, you can't just throw away lifelong allegiances overnight. And the story does take place over the course of about 24 hours. So, yeah, he's still going to have that deep emotional connection to the other Vidkar, of which he is one. You know, and he hasn't seen his mother or known her his entire life. So it's going to be a, a struggle. But, um, but I think that's... he needs to see corruption in the world. He needs to witness events like in Fahrenheit 451. Um, Montag witnesses the woman stepping into the fire made by her books and killing herself because her books mean more to her than her life. And this wakes him up to the value of books and to the evil of the society. And so... 
you know, maybe I'm taking this down the wrong path, but if this is a story like what I'm thinking, then the events of your story need to be set up so that things happen that reveal the underbelly that has previously been hidden from him, and he sees, and he starts to change. So it happens before he meets his mother, and then he starts to investigate. Is it really like this? What, why did, you know, why did this woman immolate herself what is it about the society that's gone wrong? And in his investigation, he can sneak around and find out stuff about Cassandra or whatever, or this governor, um, and then come to the realization of what is right when he meets his mother. I don't know. No, that's uh, good. I've got, I've got a character in place who can help him with that, and that's Chase, because Chase is part of that underbelly. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's one of the, the discreet operatives of the Vidkar, and his love for Pep is going to, to lead him to to illuminate certain aspects of the, the Vidkar society that Pep was not aware of. Well, and I love that because, you know, it, your your proposed conclusion is is Peth aligning with his mother. Mm -hmm. And and rather than have it have you compress all of that transition, that that transformation of perception from, oh, I love the Vidkar and Drussel is perfect, to okay, mom, I'm with you, let's burn it all to the <laughs> ground and move forward. If instead you create, as as Gene suggests, this this sense of dissatisfaction that is only reinforced as he discovers more and realizes and affirms, holy crap, this place is wrong. This is really wrong and 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 I, I need to to make it right. And only at the end does he realize that burning it to the ground is the solution. You know, maybe maybe his arc in the middle is to try and fix this. Mm. And and the invasion is is actually an intrusion on that primary goal of of exploring what is rotten in Drasil uh, uh and 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 moving forward from there. I love that idea. Yeah, absolutely. I actually questioned how much how much of a love Peth actually has for the Vitkar. He, he may feel a sense of belonging because he is one of the Vitkar, but uh, uh, you've described him as being self-centered, and it seems like he doesn't have a strong bond to anyone. He has a desire for Cassandra, mm -hmm. but I don't think he's got a strong emotional bond to anybody. No, uh, which is part of what frustrates Chase, and I think a lot of this story is going to be getting him to have a strong bond to somebody. Exactly. You hit, you hit uh. upon a good point. He's got a desire for Cassandra just as he has a desire to feel <laughs> like you Yeah, so so there's, there's rich, you know, I think the relationship between Cassandra and Peth and Chase and Peth is, is you know, Gene, you, you identified early on that, that, you know, if this is the love of your life, uh, then, then you've got motivation. Uh, and that could actually be, you know, we, we discussed during the 20 minutes with the, the evolution of character desires uh, and choices. And, and, you know, I think there, we can look at that, those causal events and identify a, a, a progression of uh, first he's choosing to pursue Cassandra. Uh, and in that pursuit, uh, uncovers, uh, uh, you know, maybe he's shot down. Maybe she, she gives him a very emphatic hell. No, uh, this is not happening. And I would be very curious as to know why 
she's not interested in a relationship with Peth. I mean, Peth is kind of a cool dude, or at least we assume he is. He's the protagonist. He's got to have something going for him. So why isn't Cassandra interested in a relationship with him? Uh, maybe it's got something to do with the, the Vidcar and the way they do what they do. Maybe Peth is slated for assassination. Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not intended to be that guy. In fact, you talked about the shadowy uh, uh, Vidcar like Chase and, and Peth's rune. You know, maybe the reason they're so shadowy is they kill other Vidcar. Maybe mm-hmm. the governor is actually a puppet pulling strings and trying to manipulate the, the people who embody these forces. Maybe he's planning an invasion of, of the outside world and marshalling their power uh, to, to, to step out and, and break out of these the, the teeth of the world in this isolation and seclusion. I don't know. I'm just kind of spinning at this point. Well, I mean, beyond beyond that, um, something else that wasn't mentioned is that Lydia and Cassandra used to be best friends. So that might have something to do with Cassandra's detachment towards Path. Hmm. Okay. And yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, the, the team of Path and Chase are kind of like the wetworks people for the Vidcar. Well, and they also embody transformation. I mean, there's there's the shadows and there's transformation. And those two aspects really kind of embody, you know, maybe 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 Drossel has gone as far as it can as a culture. It's it's sure. outlived its well, obviously it has. It's time for the goddesses to move on and make Peth then the agent of that change. Uh, uh, give him some agency and have him resolve that it's time to change that. And it just so happens that the invasion provides a useful tool for that. I don't know. Doc, you were, you were going to say something. What do you got, man? Um, yeah, I just, the, the whole idea of, of Lydia and Cassandra being, being best of friends, uh, especially with Cassandra being ancient and, and Lydia being a mere mortal. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, illuminate a little about how that works was, it, well, we know that Cassandra is Peth's mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what is she like as a person? What is her power? What is her, her, her part in Vitkar in this, this society? Uh, she rules over the waters. Her rune is Lagoos. So there's a, an archipelago um, village of Portsmouth where Cassandra presides over. Like each of the each of the elder Vitkar kind of has dominance over a different area of the island. Mm-hmm. So uh, Lydia was just a, a fisherwoman in the past, and with okay. Cassandra being like the um, the head vidcar of that area, you know, being involved very heavily in watercrafting, they they see each other a lot. And as Lydia grows up, she and Cassandra kind of bond. You know, you've got to imagine that when Lydia was a child, Cassandra was fifties. So maybe Cassandra sees something in her that's almost, um, is it filial, where she's the, sees her almost as a daughter? Sure. Yeah, I would sure. say it's sounding more, it sounded like Cassandra as a as a person, or at least this incarnation is more maternal, and while she, right. she rules over the, 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 the fisher folk of the island, uh, uh, and those who make their lives on the sea, that she, she looks at them less subjects and more as as children let's focus more on the core characters right. uh, uh, you know Cassandra Cassandra's relationship to path can can be molded and shaped uh, as we see right. as we see okay. fit so so let's let's stay focused in that in that core area of, of path's progression Gene what other thoughts do you have along those lines where what are you thinking about the talk, the conversation so far and where do we need to go next do you think 
Okay, so I'm thinking that, I'm honestly thinking that Cassandra is using him and leading him on to keep him loyal to the Vitgar, but that's, we can mm-hmm. skip over that. Uh, so maybe when Peth starts to see that the society is rotten and they're doing bad things, uh, that they start to excuse it by saying, well, we have to do these bad things because we're being invaded by these other people, and so we have to, we won't do it forever, but we'll have to do it. So that could be a way for him to be struggling with whether to trust the society or whether to um, start to rebel against the society and he could dig deeper and then he can discover, no, they've always been doing this. They've always been doing these bad things and they're rotten to the core. I think an explosive event to have happen in the story would be for Peth to betray Chase for Cassandra so that Cassandra yeah, wants something out of him and Chase wants to go against that because Chase is perhaps sort of, if we have the internal conflict and path between the Vitgar and the other guys, Cassandra is on the Vitgar side, Chase is on the other side, so he has to choose one or the other. He chooses Cassandra. He betrays Chase. Chase could get locked up or pulled into pieces or whatever because he could be put back, I think. (laughs) (laughs) but I was also thinking about this killing of the assassin. You say there's this the attempt on the governor's life, and he tries to stop the bad guy, but accidentally kills him. I don't think it should be an accident. He should realize at that point that this assassin is actually a good guy, and that the governor is actually bad, and that the assassin will give up his mother, or give up some information that's critical, and that he's got to kill this guy, so that the guy won't talk when tortured, so that he can help the mother side. Um, anyway, I'm just trying to see how to, to slightly shift some of the events to show the stronger progression sure. of path switching sides. Well, and and you know, there's that whole uh, uh, they 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 bring the the prisoner back to the to the council to the world tree. You know, if if Chase and Peth are are if their runes are traditionally the 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 wet work dudes of the the Vidkar, maybe that's a moment. You know. The, the council says, all right, Peth, time to step up. Kill this dude. Mm. And, and, yeah. and, and Peth goes, well, well, no, he's a, he's a prisoner. It's just, nope, we got it. We got, he's from the outside. We got to kill him. And, and right. the fact that he's from the outside and must be killed, uh, you know, Peth probably knows his mother is also from the outside, whether he's aware she's a part of the invasion or not, he probably feels a connection to that outside world. In fact, you know, one thing that occurred to me was the idea of, of archives of the various Vidkar and their, uh, the events of their per, uh, uh, lives. And maybe Peth's rune is, is not open to him. Maybe he doesn't have access to those archives and he really wants to know about his history. And, oh, yeah. and, no, and have it, yeah. you know, have that be one of his motivations. You know, he's, where do I come from? What am I? And have there be a revelation of, Oh, you're an assassin. You're a killer. You you and Chase are both killers. Uh, uh, and how do you deal with that? And how do you work with that? And and have this be like a catalyst for that discovery? I don't, I don't know. No, I wonder. That's that's a great point because I didn't even think about that. But yes, previous incarnations have done that kind of job. Why wouldn't the Vidkar put that on path? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, and yeah, he has been kept completely in the dark about his past and well everything. Yeah. Yeah, and I have the feeling that that Chase is is using his shape shifting abilities to sneak into the archives and, and steal mm. of the files he's not supposed to see, and that's why he knows about 
his his association with Pep. Sure, and that could be that could be you know one of the ways that Chase uh, uh, bonds with Peth is I found our archives. You've got to see these, you know, and actually comes to him and shows him I stole this. Holy crap. Gene, what were you going to say earlier? Uh, I was just going to say that if there's then a, a, a further moment, a turning point, like where he's told to kill Chase or where he discovers his history of doing all this dirty work for the Vitgar, that that could turn him from perhaps trying to reform the system to then realizing his mother's right and the system has to be burned down. Because yeah. I, I think you kind of have, you know, if if we can change this from 4X to 3X, I would feel much better because 4X <laughs> don't usually work well. Um, so that the end of the first act would be where he witnesses something that indicates to him the society has a problem he did not believe it had. And so now he has to investigate and then and and think about changing. Can Can it be fixed whatever this thing is can can it be fixed is it just one rotten governor maybe or is it the whole thing and then at the end of the second act he discovers no it's not just one rotten governor it's the whole thing is rotten and it's been rotten all along and it must be burned down then i think you have like a three-act structure going on with his evolution and change in goals yeah yeah i like that i like yeah, no, that i i do like it too i, I think i've made the vidcarm too benevolent in my own mind so, mm-hmm. yeah. And Peth a little too accepting, you know, let him be a rebel. I mean, really, when you think about the, the, the combination of shadow and transformation, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of ways that can be applied and explored. And that's one thing that I really like about this concept of, of beings embodying a runic uh, symbol is that you can really uh, explore the symbolism and the the emotional and spiritual essence of those because they would embody those things. In fact, now that I think about it, it seems to me that that both Peth and and Chase, those runes represent the biggest threat to Drossil society. Because they okay. really are dangerous, dangerous concepts to a, a, a society that's that's founded on stasis and stability. They are very unstable yeah. runes. Oh, good point. Yes, uh, Dave, since you brought this up, I want to throw out a spin that I've been thinking of here. Um, so this is very much an ordered society. Uh, um, Peth and Chase both being about the same age. Obviously, their predecessors were killed when uh, 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 <laughs> Peth's father, when Peth's father was taken out. You got it. Yeah, and um, they were sent to assassinate him, and he ended up taking them out instead. Right. Um, but given powers of invisibility and shape-shifting and the fact that the rest of this world is ordered and it's it's basically set up for the benefit of the Vitkar, these kids are bored. Mm-hmm. There are no challenges in their life. Um uh, with their powers, they can do anything they want. They can get anything they want. Peth's big thing is he's looking for a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps part of the reason that he's feeling enamored of Cassandra is because she's unobtainable. Uh, as a mentor, she's, she sets herself apart and she looks at him as a child, so she's unattainable. But, but, and I can see that that's the seduction for the dark side, for, for going out and people and causing yeah. mayhem see i have a problem i i think it would be much i, I think this is this is just let me let me put this out there 
what if Cassandra is totally in to Peth? You know, Gene, you had mentioned that the, you know, having Cassandra uh, use Peth as a, a, a tool to keep him and 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 indoctrinate him into into the Vidcar ways. What if she's not aloof and standoffish? What if she's you know, playing an act because she is water uh, uh, and and changeable and flowing and and emotional and so on. What if, what if she's totally into him and and it's Chase that creates the conflict? You know, Peth is actually looking at a really great life because Cassandra is is his lover and his his true love. And having Chase come in and throw a monkey wrench in that and say, "Dude, she is not into you. Look at what we've got." Bam, and have that be a catalyzing moment of 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 conflict and transformation, uh, and and work from that perspective. Uh, uh, that that might you know give us a stronger emotional launching point uh, uh, to to begin Peth's. Uh, uh, heroic arc i don't know another story of this type uh besides uh fahrenheit 451 is minority report yes and, uh in that um movie the tom cruise character is very much you know the star of the show he's the bright boy who you know can do the stuff and he's the master of the hand gestures and all of that um and then <laughs> slowly uncovers the the rotten underbelly um, so that's another good model. I also want to mention a, a book that was made into a movie. But, uh, the book was by John Ferris, I think, called The Fury, uh, about this uh, teenage guy and girl who have these psychic powers. And there's the guy has this woman handler, like in the CIA, who has sex with him and keeps him happy and, uh, you know, tries to keep him happy anyway. Uh, uh, which could be the role that Cassandra is taking if they think, you know, that Peth is um, very powerful and they want to make sure that, you know, he's, he's content or whatever. Um, I, I want to mention one other thing, maybe as a little bit of an earlier point, when you guys were talking about the runes, I'm wondering about how much the runes, how much his rune dictates who he is, right? So if Ooh, he's been this yeah. slime ball throughout history of his previous incarnations, and now he wants to change, how hard is it for him to change uh, and become a non-slime ball? Uh, is, it, is it inherent in the rune that maybe it has more possibilities to it than most people believe? Does he need to discover some hidden aspect of it in which he could still follow his rune, but in a good way rather than a bad way? That's definitely a theme I wanted to explore because a lot of a lot of him trying to prove himself is trying to remove that stigma of previous paths. He doesn't quite know why the other Vidkar kind of give him the side eye. But... Well, and he needs to find that out early. I mean, right. we, we, we can set that up, but there needs to be, uh, uh, you know, raise that question, uh, uh, but then answer it as quickly as possible. Because that's the real interesting meat of this story is, is the discovery that you're according to your rune and, and gene i love that concept because because runes like like tarot cards like all, so many symbolic divination tools have multiple meanings and that's you know in the context of a ya story that's wonderful because there's this whole you're supposed to be this and and establishing right. that early on and then pointing out that this is not necessarily what you have to be, that, that you have choice in that expression of, of who and what you are, I think is vital uh, uh, and, and a powerful theme to explore. I love that. Absolutely. At, at, 
And I think I think possibly the answer to this is one character that he mentioned in his pitch that we haven't talked about yet, which is the hermit that Peth is supposed to turn to in Act Four. Um, and it's like, who is this hermit? Is I what I'm seeing is beautiful is the idea that the hermit is one of the Vitkar who mm-hmm. said yeah. early on that this whole system is screwed. You people are just going to mess things up. And if you're going to do this, I'm just going to go find a cave and I'm going to live there. Um, but the, the hermit's got to come in much earlier to show that, that, that Peth knows about this person and why, why Peth would go to this person and try to convince them. And maybe the hermit is the one that, that, you know, Peth gets bored. He goes out and, and, and bugs the hermit. And the hermit's the one who says, you don't have to be this way. Yeah. You can choose to be a better person. You can make a difference. No, I like I like that a lot because um, to me, the hermit is coming across way too much uh, as a deus ex machina. Very it's, much yeah. so. Very much yeah. so. Yeah, I, I like and, that a lot. And, and to see, you make the hermit the, the, the real mentor. Right. And Cassandra is set up as, as the mentor of the system and the hermit is the, is kind of the hidden key. Or the catalyst. The, or the catalyst. It, it yeah. doesn't have to necessarily be the mentor. I mean, yeah. there is that whole hero myth cycle of the death and the emergence from the death and, and you know, a, a, the, the, the visit, a visit earlier on with the hermit could be that, mm-hmm. that death cycle where you emerge, you know, with, with new knowledge that you can then apply in, in an effective way. Right. Guys, I'm I'm looking at the clock. I'm watching it tick down. Um, so, real quick, Austin, is there something that we haven't touched on that that you would like us to explore uh, in these final minutes? Um, hmm. Okay. So, Lydia's husband, the father of Pep, is actually an outsider from the place where she goes to to get the army towards the end. You know, um, so they kill him. I had an idea that maybe Pep's father isn't actually dead. That he's just locked up somewhere deep and dark, and that's where Var has gone to kind of throw him in as a, a you know, a last-minute chip on the table. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? Is that too much? Too complicated? It, it might be too complicated, but I could see it being a very yeah. cool thing at the end uh, uh, when Lydia is, you know, holding a torch to the world tree and have Var come out with her husband uh, with a knife to his throat. You know, saying "back off, lady," or "or your 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 husband gets it," uh, uh, and that would—I don't know, Gene. What do you think? I think you could combine the hermit and the father character, and I would really love to see the hermit slash father in jail, or the dungeons, or whatever. And then when, if Peth betrays Chase at some point, and Chase gets thrown in the dungeons, and then Peth could go visit him, and there's this weird hermit in Ooh. the next cell who could say some stuff like, you don't have to be what you are, blah, blah, blah. And then he can get pulled out at the end with a knife to his throat, and the guy can say, hey, I'm going to kill your father slash husband. And then we go, oh, that was the father slash husband. We didn't know. <laughs> um, then you could kind of have the best of both worlds and get rid of a character. I mean, if you're going <laughs> to add in the father as a character, maybe get rid of another character so you don't overpopulate the story. I kind of like that. I was going to say that would give Pep a lot more agency in the ultimate decision as to, to who to side with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and affirm that the Vidcar are not, do not have his best interests right. at heart <laughs> uh, and, and are bad people. I love it. I love it. Awesome. 
All right. Well, let's let's take one last turn around the table. Uh, let's 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 fill Austin's pockets with as much literary gold as we can. Give give some final thoughts, some 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 advice, some some uh, uh, avenues of exploration that that Austin can take with him and and make this make this story as awesome as it can be. Um, Gene, we'll start with you. Uh, final thoughts for for Austin. Well, I'm very excited about this. I think it's just evolving into something really strong. And I think you had great elements to start with. Um, I think maybe the next step would be to think about the nature of the Vidgar society. And if it is rotten and corrupt, why and in what way and how has Peth been involved in his previous lives? And then how is he going to find out and how is that going to affect him uh, in this current life? I really like the idea of the the father being the one to tell him that the rune can be more than what he thinks it can because he has the knowledge of the outside world, which none of these Vitgar have, and so he could perhaps bring a different perspective on the runes than the people living with the runes. Um, so um, I would say think more about the society and about exciting ways in which Path can find out about the rottenness of it that relate to the characters that you have um, because that seems like it's going to be a really powerful, um, the main powerful part of the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and God, knowing your world and knowing your the, the character's place in that world is is vital. I love that. Doc, what about you? Final thoughts? Um, I, I keep looking at this world and I keep finding myself reminded of the, the Vlad Talta stories where uh, society is divided up into all these different great houses and and what you do with your life is dependent on what house that you were born in. Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and there's definitely a, a, a class structure here among the Vitkar basically on you know what power is it that fills you or, or, or what part of the island you're in and, and whose domain is, is that is and, it may look it may look kind and ordered and benevolent on the top side, but there's always a dark side. There's always a dirty underbelly, and there's always a, a, a dirty acts that are being done to 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 keep the system up. And um, our protagonist can go in and, and fix that. And, and it's it's definitely a case of our, our protagonists have have the powers that they are expected to do some of those the acts. You know, keep the the governor in power. And it also puts them in an interesting position to see what the abuses are when they start getting called on to, to clean up of things um, and have to question, do they really want to be part of this? Mm -hmm. uh, do they want, really want to be the dark underbelly or do they want to aspire for something more? Yeah. Um, yeah. Very interesting world you've created here. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, uh, and and for myself, Austin, I will I will definitely affirm what my esteemed colleagues uh, have put out there. There's there's good stuff there. Um, uh, there the, the sense that I got uh, uh, was this, that the world is uh, the, the world building and world history in particular. The sense of place of Drasil uh, uh, is 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 a little flat at this point. Uh, and and I I would echo that that exploration not especially of Peth's uh, uh, previous incarnations or 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 
the runes incarnations and its its engagement with the with the the culture and the society, uh, but also even going go, going back to the goddesses uh, and their intent with this. You know, if there is a cycle that is being perpetuated here, uh, uh, then then are the Vidkar aware of that cycle and and what is their their role in this? Uh, if there are three goddesses, maybe there's three segments of society. Uh, uh, I, I, I was love, thinking that too. I, I love Gene's uh, invocation of Minority Report. I'm also thinking of like Divergence, uh, God, and even Hunger Games. You know, to to invoke a, a couple of of iconic uh, uh, YA novels of recent times. Um, the illusion of a long-standing culture and the history and the legacy of its goods and its bads, and is. Where does your protagonist fit into that? I think that will inform a lot of what's going on. The other suggestion that I had was you've kind of compressed your story as presented into 24 hours. Um, And I I would urge you to release yourself from that linear temporal shackle and maybe have this happen over a span of weeks or even months. Uh, uh, Don't have the invasion happening all at once, but have there be those stages of, of... espionage and incursion leading to an invasion maybe the initial incursion creates a uh, uh, some sort of of eruption of of confusion and and controversy within drasil society uh, uh which gives peth and chance uh chase rather that the opportunity to to explore some of those things because everything is in uproar uh, prior to the invasion and then have the invasion be that apex. Again, Gene's suggestion of going with a three-act structure of espionage, incursion, invasion, and have everything follow that that growth cycle, that escalation cycle. Uh, those, those are just some of my thoughts. So, so, Austin, this has been awesome. This has been really good stuff. Now, here's the deal. Uh, uh, you write this bad boy and, and do please write this bad boy. This is this this has so much awesomeness in it. I would love to see where you go with this. When you do, when you put it out there in the world, whether you trad pub it, indie pub it, you you put it up on Amazon, you you post it as a PDF on your on your Facebook page, uh, you let us know and we will have you come back and we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the round table podcast. Sounds amazing, <laughs> <laughs> or, or or at least moderately cool. Yes, absolutely. Oh, so uh, we will words and wine and winches. It's downright nifty, right? Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Well, Austin, <laughs> thank you so much, man. I I appreciate you bringing your story to the table uh, and such a fine discussion uh, and exploration. Uh, this this has been awesome. My my deepest gratitude, sir. Thank you, guys. This has been amazing. My my brain is gone. <laughs> his brain has left it's clocked out left the building <laughs> as long as you can pick up the pieces absolutely uh gene I, I i cannot thank you enough for for participating for for adding to the froth and 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 leveraging your experience in such a productive way i think i think the story uh, uh and the discussion was enriched by having you here and we're very very appreciative of your time and your mojo this has been awesome thank you ma'am Oh, thank you. I had a great time. Awesome. Yes, it's always a good time here at the round table. The ideas bouncing around, that's just good stuff. Uh, and, and Doc, as always, a pleasure sharing the mic with you, my friend. 
a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to the next time. Absolutely, and you could bet there will be. And as long as we're doling out gratitude, dear friends who have tuned in, thank you. Uh, uh, this, this, this. Without you, we're just kind of frothing around in this sort of bubble of of discussion and creative uh, exploration. Having you tune in closes that circus and and brings it out into the world. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did, and you got some good writerly mojo uh, uh, to take with you for your own efforts. Uh, uh, if you're if you're digging. It and you're, you're, you want to pay it forward a bit by all means make your way out to iTunes uh, give us a review uh, that always helps in improving our, our, our standing in the in the rankings of things and we do love hearing what you what you have to say about what we're doing and how we're doing it uh, we do have a message board now at the round table you can go out to the round table podcast www.roundtablepodcast.com click on the forum link uh, there'll be a, a discussion thread set up for this very topic so you can dive in and give Austin your ideas and your insights and your uh, uh, possible uh, story threads to weave into this golden tapestry of literary goodness. So, oh, jeez. Once again, uh, uh, Doc, we've done it. We've, 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 we've frothed. We've, there's, there's literary gold strewn all over the place. Uh, I'm exhausted. What about you? Uh, I, I feel like I need a nap now. <laughs> <laughs> or at least a brandy. Or at least uh. a brandy and a cigar. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, now, friends, as spent and, and worn out as we are, uh, uh, the wonderful thing about the roundtable is next week it starts all over again. More fabulous, courageous guest writers bringing their stories to the table. More awesome guest hosts bringing their experience uh, and insights to, to, to benefit us all. Uh, more roundtable goodness to be had. Had. But that that is wow seven days from now so so doc uh, that's a long time for our friends to to be sitting around twiddling their thumbs what what do you think they need to be doing well the weather's cold out there so you got to stay warm yes and uh, bundle up bundle yourself up tight and uh, grab up a good book read some read some excellent fiction and then turn that around and sit down and do some of that writing of your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, pencils on paper, that generates friction. Keys on keyboard, <laughs> that generates friction. I mean, that's a good heat source uh, and also a good creative source. So by all means, and, do so. And the passion that burns in your creative soul, that'll keep you warm too. Absolutely. Excellent point. For myself, dear friends, I will tell you, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for that blue label, top shelf goodness, and I promise you, you will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys, as always, stay cool, but stay warm. Be frothy and be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, 
visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.